We're on part two of the series that uh, we started last week called The Star, A Journey to Christmas. And this is um, uh, an Advent series in a way. And Advent is um, something that's celebrated more and more in churches that look a little bit like ours, of our stripe, so to speak. But a lot of liturgical churches celebrate Advent. And Advent is a way to kind of slow Christmas down. A lot of people, it's December the 25th, and boom, it's over. And uh, then when then you clean your house, and then you get your visa bill in January, and you start getting depressed, you know, and that's Christmas. Uh, well, Advent is kind of the idea of, well, why don't we prepare our hearts and do a little bit of introspection as we approach the celebration of the birth of Christ. It's a really neat tradition. And so we're trying to experience Christmas by slowing it down a little. I was talking with some people this morning, and you know, the the commercialism behind Christmas is so, there's so much pressure to spend all this money and all of this. I mean, Advent is kind of the opposite of that. It's the idea of saying, okay, what, is, what, what do we want Christmas to really be about? Um, and if it is something that we want to make about the birth of Jesus, well, then maybe we should slow it down a little bit, okay? Uh, but we, before we get there, and last week we talked about hope and kind of unwrapping the gift of hope at Christmas time. Today we're going to talk about love. But before we get there, as we did last week, uh, we need to just recognize that when we talk about Christmas in the Bible and we talk about Christmas as per tradition, the two are very, very different. So you find the Christmas story uh, in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. I was reading a little bit of it today. It's really fast. I mean, if you do anything over the Christmas season, just read the Christmas narrative. So you can, you can go to the Gospel of Matthew, and it starts, even if you skip the long genealogy, you know, you start after the genealogy, you've got Matthew, the back half of chapter 1, Matthew chapter 2, and Matthew chapter 3, and you're pretty well done with Matthew. Okay, and then you can check out what Luke has to say about it. Again, you skip the genealogy if you want to, and you're Luke chapter one and a half, and Luke chapter two, and you're done. It's really, really fast when you read the Christmas story, but we have these images in our mind of what Christmas looked like, and the images are kind of funny. I put this on the screen uh, last week, and a lot of people, I, I put it on Facebook because people laughed, and there's a few comments that came on Facebook. Okay, so Christmas is not this, right? This is the hipster Christmas nativity scene, which you can buy. I think it's about $150 for this. We have them on sale in the foyer today. I'm just kidding. So, so the, it's really amusing because if you look closely, you know, you see the different people in the Christmas story, but they look a little different. You know, you've got the, you've got the cow over there, but he's 100% organic, and you've got the sheep, and he has a designer sweater, and you have the little manger there, but if you zoomed in, you could see that it's gluten-free uh, food for the animal, you know, and you have one shepherd there, and he's in his skinny jeans, and He's taking a picture on his iPad and sending it to his fellow shepherd people. And then you have Mary and Joseph in the center. And, you know, Joseph is doing a selfie with his phone. And Mary's got her, her duck face and she's posing for the camera. And, you know, her dress is not exactly 
modest per se, and she's got her latte in her hand, you know, and then you got the three wise men uh, dressed very in vogue with their gifts from Amazon, if you look at the box, and they're on those, uh, what do you call them, segways, I think, those things that roll, you know, it's very, very funny, and I think those are solar panels on top of the, the, the house or whatever it is. Okay, so that's not Christmas, right? And some people are offended by this picture. It's caused some controversy, this, this modern, because people say that's so sacrilegious to think that, you know, look at this, this is making a mockery of Christmas. And so uh, traditional folks, they think that Christmas looks like this. Uh, and this is a lot more, you know, this is really what we're talking about. And you have little Jesus there, and he looks so quiet and so peaceful. And Mary's got her little Catholic hand up in the air. And, you know, Joseph is stunned, and the little sheep is buying, And, you know, the wise men and the shepherd and all this. And people say, well, that, that's Christmas, you know. And uh, the, the, the truth is that Christmas looked almost nothing like that. If you read the Bible, okay, we have these traditional... Images in our mind, the movies, the television, the pretty little Christmas cards with these rose colors and gold. and be- It's so beautiful, so serene, so peaceful, so nice. The Christmas story, it's not very much like that at all. And we looked at some of this last week. Let me give you some facts about Christmas that may shock you a little bit. Um, Jesus was not born in a barn. We have this image that, you know, because the, the scripture says in most translations, uh, the time came for him to be born where he went to, the, you know, Mary and Joseph went to Bethlehem because Joseph was part of Bethlehem and you had this nationwide census and there was no room for them in the inn and we think that the inn is sort of this Motel 6 or Motel 8 or Howard Johnson's or uh, whatever it is and no room for them in the hotel or motel and so they, he was born in some barn somewhere and they placed him in a manger, okay? They, this is likely not at all the case. Uh, when it says that there was no room for them in the inn, if you think about it, so Joseph goes to his hometown of Bethlehem, and where's he going to stay? Well, he's going to stay with relatives because that's his hometown. And back in that day, uh, you, have a, you have a typical house, you know, more or less a poor peasant house. And what you had was an upper room, uh, and Luke uses the same word to describe upper room in the Gospel of Luke as he does in. I don't know why we translate it in, but it can be translated upper room as well. And you had that room up there where people slept. And then down on the main floor, uh, they would bring animals into the house on that main floor to protect them from the elements, to protect them from being stolen. Uh, Animals are very important commodity for people back then. And so what happened most likely is that Joseph comes to the home and the place is full. You have this census, probably many family members reporting there to this hometown to be taxed. And so they probably had the baby on that main floor where there may have been some animals present. The Bible doesn't say there were any animals there. All it says is that they wrapped him in swaddling clothes and placed him in a manger. A manger is a trough that animals eat out of because there was no room for him, for them, in the inn or probably that upper room. So this image of this barn uh, is really just kind of a traditional thing. It probably didn't happen that way at all. Uh, the other day I saw, uh, uh, was volunteering at the, at the food bank and I saw this lady come in 
and she finally, finally had her baby. Um, and this tiny, tiny little baby, I mean, the cutest little thing. And she, she brought the baby in, very, very young, just a few weeks old. And uh, so she came to the area where I was volunteering, and I didn't see the baby. And I was like, well, where's the baby? And then people are looking at her, her, her cart. It's like a shopping cart. And they're saying, there's a baby in there. I said, well, where? I don't see the baby in the cart. And what this lady had done, very clever, she had no crib, no nice fancy car seat or anything, which she does now. I saw her last week. But she, she took the baby and she wrapped the baby up really tight like in swaddling clothes. You know what a swaddle is, those of you who are parents? You take that baby, and there's a way to wrap that baby up so the baby is nice and tight like this. They can't move their arms. They can't move their legs. You tuck them in like this. You put the little hat on their head, and boop, they're going to go right to sleep, right? It's a swaddle. And she had this baby all swaddled up, and she put the baby lengthwise in that little thing that kids sit in in the grocery store, in the, in the shopping cart. You know, when your kid's a little older, you just dump them in the front there and you're pushing your car and the kid's looking at you where she had this little baby sideways wrapped in a swaddle in this cart like a little football. It was the cutest little thing. And you look, you said, is the baby okay? Is the baby, she, she, she says, the baby's fine. The baby's sleeping. And sure enough, the baby was hunky-dory just fine. Um, so so in the, you use what works. And back then, this is probably, you know, well, we've got no place to put Jesus. He's likely crying. This is what healthy babies do. When healthy babies are born, they cry. Uh, when they're not crying, you're worried, right? So he's probably crying, not like that image where he looks so peaceful and so calm and so Catholic. He is probably crying. And pardon me to any Catholics in the room, okay, I'm just, just poking fun. Um, so, so they use what works. And, and I, I just saw an illustration of that, you know, within recent days. There, there were likely not three wise men or three magi uh, because they got the, the attention of Herod the Great and all of Jerusalem. Um, three people coming in saying, you know, where's this star? We were looking for the king of the Jews. They wouldn't have generated that amount of interest. You probably had a large caravan of these astrologers, astronomers. They probably mishmash, dabbled in the occult, all kinds of stuff coming far from far, far away from Persia. And it's probably a massive caravan of them because they got the attention of Herod the Great and all of Jerusalem who were all disturbed, the scripture says, because they're coming, they're saying, where is he that is born king of the Jews? Excuse me, who are these people? Coming with this announcement, they were not there the night of Jesus' birth. Matthew says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, there came wise men. So they were not there the night that Jesus was born. Jesus was not born on December the 25th, the year 0 AD, okay? The calendar didn't even operate the same way that it operates today. The truth of the matter be told, Herod the Great died in what we would call 4 B.C., which meant that Jesus was born before Jesus was born, according to our calendar. Because Jesus was probably born at least two years or up to two years before Herod the Great died, if you read the story. And we know that Herod the Great died in 4 BC, according to our calendar. So our calendar, there's a, there's a monk who missed time, the founding of Rome, 
Uh, and this is why this idea that Jesus was born in the year zero, it's a false idea. It's likely between 6 and 4 B.C. You say, how could Jesus be born before Jesus was born? Well, again, we're dealing with a calendar that's a bit, a bit messed up. Um, Herod's history, we know quite a bit about Herod the Great. Uh, this infanticide that we see in the scripture where this man literally takes the lives of probably hundreds of babies. Can you imagine what a savage leader that would have been to take the lives of babies? This is the Christmas story. Uh, well, we know quite a bit about Herod. He was a very, very paranoid ruler. He had his wife murdered. He had a couple of his sons murdered. Uh, he, he was very paranoid. He was very violent at times. Even though he was a great architect and builder, he was, he was quite a paranoid ruler. And this idea of taking the lives of these babies fits in fairly. It's, it's not unexpected if you know the character of Herod the Great. Uh, from history, uh, Joseph and Mary were like the original refugee couple. Uh, they're running for their lives from this slaughter of babies. They go over to Egypt for a time. Uh, Mary had many children after Jesus. This idea that Mary uh, remained a, a virgin, uh, this is not in the scripture. We see clearly that, that Mary had many other children. Jesus had brothers, or you could call them half-brothers and half-sisters. We see it in the Gospels. Uh, there's no natural explanation for the star of Bethlehem. I've read that scholars, they say it's a conjunction of planets. It's a comet. It's a star. Uh, stars don't behave like that. There's no astronomical body that behaves like the star of Bethlehem at all. Uh, it's something that only the wise men seem to have seen. Nobody else seems to have seen it. Tell me if you've ever seen a star that stops on top of a house. I mean, this is, this is a, entirely not explicable by natural means. So all these things, and this is just pieces and parts, the Christmas story is very different in the Gospels, and I'd encourage you to read it. And we're going to talk today about this gift, if you will, of love that God gives to us uh, through the idea of Christmas and, and, and even beyond you know, those of you who have maybe grown up in the church or you've attempted to share your faith with people uh, who are not Christian people, the, the cliche tagline that many of us use is we say, well, God loves you, right? And, and many of you growing up in the church, you probably heard that so many times you're inoculated to it. You know, God loves you. Tell a non-Christian person that today, that God loves them. The, the, you are likely going to get an immediate rejection, and it's going to be, uh, God loves me. So if God loves me, why did God allow this to happen to me? Or why is God allowing this to happen to me, or to my family, or to this person, or in this situation, if God loves me? You're not going to get a, oh yeah, God loves me. Yeah, I, 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 amen. You know, you're not going to get that when you talk to a non-Christian person. But even in the church today, Many of us have become inoculated to this idea that God loves us. So I want to show you from the scripture uh, a bit of a demonstration looking at observations here about God's love. Uh, first and foremost, before you even get to Christmas, God's love is in God's nature. Before you even get to Christmas, because the nature of God 
if you look at his nature and you inspect the scripture, you will see that it makes perfect sense to say that God is love and that God loves. Because God exists in community. This is his nature that we see in the scripture. So example of this, uh, way back in the book of Genesis, this is, this is the creation story. So what does it say? And God said, this is one God speaking, I've underlined it for you, and God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Okay, full stop. How can one God use the term us? Who's he talking to? Is he talking to angels? Well, angels don't create. Uh, we don't see any example in the scripture of angels creating. Who in the world is he talking to? You have one God saying, let us and if that's a bad translation, well, then we have to say our is a bad translation. Then the next hour is a bad translation. No, there's a distinct uh, plurality that we see even in the book of Genesis, even in the creation account. We have one God who somehow exists in some form of community. We don't really know what it is at this point, but this is what we see in Genesis 1. And so God made man in his own image. Well, now it's singular. In the image of God, he, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Right away, you see God exists in community somehow, and God creates people, man and woman, in his image. Those of you who are parents... You have a little bit of this verse that you have lived out. You see, because God exists in a community, it's God's desire to spread that and to somehow extend that beyond himself. And what we see in the scripture is that God is revealed as the Father as the Son, and as the Holy Spirit. We see this as we inspect the Scripture from end to end. We use a word to describe this called the Trinity. You won't find the word in the Bible, but it's just a word we use to describe what we see. We see one God, but we see Him expressed in three co-equal persons who eternally exist before they create the entire cosmos out of nothing. And they make this decision, he makes this decision to create. So Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, we see the Spirit of God brooding over the surface of the waters. So the Spirit of God is there right at the beginning of creation. We see in John chapter 1 verses 2 and 3, um, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God, the Word was God, he was with God in the beginning. Without him, nothing has been made that has been made. So the idea of Jesus as creator, the idea of the Holy Spirit as creator, the idea of God the Father as creator, the community created. God created. He exists in community. And the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is one of love and community. And so it's quite logical to say that God would, out of that desire for community, create. You, as parents who are in the room, you have a bit of the same stamp in you. 
Uh, many of you, you, you decided to have children. Some of you, you didn't decide to have the children. They just came, and it wasn't from the stork, if you know what I'm saying. Uh, but when they came, you were happy that they came because there's something inside of you that has that desire for community. There's something inside of you that has that desire to express love to someone else, especially someone else who you participated in creating and who voluntarily turns and shows community and love back to you. This is what parenting is about. And so this comes out of this whole Genesis thing. The stamp of God is on people and this idea of creating in his image, there's something of that in us even when we become parents. God's love, it's in his nature. And so we should expect things in the scripture that say, the scripture says, God is love. Of course he's love. He exists in perfect community, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, when we get to Christmas, this is where it gets really, really amazing because we see that God's love is expressed in the how. So people say today, well, how does God love me? And the scripture gives, a, gives an answer. Uh, for God so loved the world, famous, famous verse there. For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his one and only son uh, to the world that whoever believes will not perish. So he, God loves and God does something about it. He gives, uh, 1 John 4 and 9, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. So the expression of God's love is that he does something about it. And he gives his son to the world. And he comes into the world as a human being. And this is what we celebrate at Christmas time. We call it, in theological terms, we call it the incarnation. The idea of the deity becoming flesh. The word became flesh in John chapter 1. This word, we use this word incarnation. Um, I remember last Christmas we talked about this. Uh, there are many, many incarnation stories in world religion, many of them, uh, dozens upon dozens of them, this idea of God's becoming human. There are many of them, but there are significant differences in the story of Jesus becoming human when you draw a comparison between the two. So let me give you uh, some examples of this. Now, when we look at the incarnation of Jesus in, in the Gospels, the Gospel story, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's as if we're seeing that God holds nothing back, absolutely nothing back. He becomes completely, completely human. And you have this fusion of the nature of God and the nature of man, this perfect fusion that happens. But it's like God is holding absolutely nothing back in terms of this incarnation. So what do we see? We see Jesus vulnerable, very vulnerable at birth. The, the, the Mary has to swaddle him, right? And you, you parents know what that's like. You got to swaddle that little kid, keep him warm, help him go to sleep or her go to sleep. That's a statement about vulnerability, 
He's vulnerable at birth. They have to take him and run from Herod the Great, who's on a mission to take his life. So he's vulnerable at his birth. We see Jesus in the gospel stories. He's hungry. Uh, so he expresses the natural, you know, sensation, if you will, of hunger. We see that Jesus is tempted. Very famous stories there in Matthew uh, 4 and Luke 4. You can read them. He's tempted. We see that Jesus is tired in Luke chapter 8. These are all human things. We even see Jesus get angry. And it's not just in John chapter 2. On multiple occasions, Jesus expresses anger. We see Jesus troubled and weeping. Uh, the shortest sentence in the Bible, Jesus wept. Okay, we, we see that clearly. We see Jesus astonished in Matthew chapter 8. We see Jesus in anguish in Matthew chapter 26 as he's facing uh, the crucifixion. We see him uh, sweat drops of blood. We see Jesus experience death in a full and grotesque and painful way. In every single way that we would expect a human to live, we see Jesus live through all this. He's fully, fully, and completely incarnate. It's as if God holds nothing back in this incarnation of Jesus becoming flesh. I found uh, in researching this what I think is a brilliant article written by an Indian uh, scholar and pastor I'm not real sure how I ended up finding this thing, but to me, it is absolutely brilliant. And I'd like to show you what he says, and he compares the, the incarnation of Jesus to Hinduism. And in Hinduism, you have many, many incarnations. And uh, he talks about the, the comparison between the avatars, the so-called avatars of Hinduism, uh, versus the incarnation of Jesus. And they'll, they'll come on the screen, and I quote him at the bottom, uh, Dominic Marbanyang is his name. Uh, this is absolutely brilliant. And look at the differences. So in the incarnation of Jesus, you have a real incarnation portrayed. So we're not talking about a story that's given to us to convey a greater truth. And it's obvious that the writers of whatever story, they're not really intending this to be some type of eyewitness account or testimony. They're not putting their lives on the line for this. It's not really meant that way. In the gospel story, this is purported to be a real thing. The writers of the gospel accounts, they're putting their lives on the line to say that this incarnation was an actual thing that happened in real time, real space, real history, and that's the importance of it to them. You don't really see that in the other incarnation stories. They're not intended to convey whatever truth they want in that fashion. But we see this in the Gospels. You know, you have a statement in 1 John, for example, that which we have seen, which we have touched, which we have heard, which our hands have beheld. This we proclaim to you concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We saw it. We give testimony to it. This is the kind of thing that you see in the Gospels. The incarnation is portrayed as real. So Christ truly incarnated in the flesh, real flesh in the, in the avatar, uh, the avatars of Hinduism, there's an appearance there. So the avatar appears to be flesh. The physical body is a mere garment, though, that the soul puts on and the soul puts off. And you'll see this in the Bhagavad Gita. 
uh, the incarnation in, in the Gospels is portrayed as a permanent incarnation. So it's permanent, it's irrevocable, and Christ continues to be human. We, even in the book of Revelation, we see him in a glorified state, but it is not as if he now has returned back to God somehow and has been amassed, you know, like the Borg back into, into the status of God. No, we see him continue in glorified humanity and in glorified deity. It's a permanent incarnation. Uh, in, in Hinduism, it's an impermanent incarnation. The avatar returns to its former uh, form after the fulfillment of its mission. And you see this over and over and again, this cycle of repetition. In, in the gospel story, the incarnation is portrayed as being complete. So Christ became fully man and he's fully God. And it's a complete incarnation as if God holds nothing back full experience of humanity yet deity at the same time in hinduism it's a partial thing so the avatar is semi and partial it is never fully incarnated the avatar is considered to to be full when the divine is fully manifested in the human uh, however it doesn't mean that the avatar according to this this pastor is also fully human at the same time i.e for example experiencing and participating in real pain it's not portrayed that way it's not intended to be portrayed that way in christianity the the, the incarnation is propitiatory this is a fancy theological word um, he became flesh to represent us before god as a mediator uh, in other places in the New Testament, as a high priest, as a, as a sacrifice for humanity, as an atonement applied to all of humanity. It's a propitiatory incarnation, to use theological language, okay? Uh, in Hinduism, it's a bit different. It's a vindicatory incarnation. So the avatar appears for the purpose of destroying sinners and saving the righteous. It's a little bit different in the gospel story where Jesus appears to save sinners, to save humanity, and to bring about the redemption story. Uh, in Christianity, the incarnation is revolutionary. So uh, the, the birth of Jesus, his death, his resurrection, it will change the whole order of things. Revelation uh, uh, portrays a new world that is coming where there is no more death or sorrow or sin. Uh, the old order has changed, and this is because it starts with the incarnation. It is a revolutionary incarnation that's portrayed. Uh, you have a resurrection to come of the believers, and yet in Hinduism, the incarnations there, the avatars are restorative. It's a difference. The avatar restores the world to its original state of balance by removing the elements of wickedness and the world then moves along in the same way until the surge of sin or iniquity comes and then you need another avatar and you have them repeated, repeated, repeated over and over and over again. In Christianity, in the scripture, you see that it is an impartational Incarnation. I feel like we're in a classroom today. You're getting a real, real dose here. It's an impartational incarnation. So the, 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 the birth of Jesus, his death on the cross, his resurrection is imparted to the believer. It's impartational. 
uh, to the believer who is reckoned to be united with Christ and to be part of the body of Christ, the church. In Hinduism, it's a segregated incarnation. So the avatar preserves kind of a discontinuity between the world and the deity throughout. They're never truly united in one. There remains a segregation that's there. In, in the gospel story, the incarnation is final. So uh, it, it happens once. It's not repeated again. There's no need for it to be repeated again. In Hinduism, it's, there's several. The avatars are many. They're, they're in a cyclical form. That's how they're presented there. And finally, in the gospel story, the incarnation is presented in the context of a trinity. Uh, the, the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. In the context of Hinduism, it's polytheistic. I thought this guy is absolutely bang on, brilliant look. This is a significant thing. To take it out of the whole theological bookworm stuff, because you're hearing a lot of those terms, God became fully human in the person of Jesus. He held nothing back. And this is the highest expression of his love toward us from the cradle to the brutal cross. He faced the whole of what humanity and what the human experience had to throw at him. And he faced it all on our behalf. This is an expression of the love of God. We do not see uh, uh, Jesus presented in a way where, okay, the, the, it's not a full I don't relate to that. I don't relate to that God. No, you, anybody in the room can relate to Jesus himself because we see the things that he experienced and we ourselves experience the same thing. Uh, and, and we see God's love not only in the how and how God became flesh, but we see it in the who and who God appeared to. If you look just at the Christmas story, what do you have? You have Mary, who there's no special distinction about Mary that if we read the Gospels, she appears to purely be chosen uh, by God to, to carry this baby. I mean, she's a standard, common, probably teenage, betrothed girl. There's nothing particularly spectacular uh, about her. Remember when the wise men finally came and they see uh, uh, Jesus and they see his mother Mary. By the way, there's no mention of Joseph when the wise men arrived. I don't know if he was in the house or out of the house. It doesn't say. But th when they arrive, who do they worship? They, they worship Jesus. They don't worship Mary. Okay? There's, there's nothing presented in the gospel story that's sensational or spectacular about Mary. Very average, very common. This is not Paris Hilton. You know, this is not some celebrity, some superstar. You know, she's not royalty. She's nobody, nobody. You see uh, uh, Elizabeth and uh, Zechariah, is, uh, seniors, barren seniors who are going to give birth to John the Baptist, who's going to uh, prepare the way for Jesus himself. Senior people, common folk, nothing spectacular, nothing sensational. You see these, these Persian uh, wise men, as we call them. Okay, these are not Hebrew people. These are not Christian people. These are, these are people who are into astronomy, astrology, the occult, and everything in between. Uh, and they're the ones 
who are led by this bizarre star. They're the ones who say they want to worship Jesus as king of the Jews. They're the ones who think that this little baby is God. Them, of all the people, this is who God appears to? This is a very motley crew of people that God appears to. Who, who are the people who first see Jesus when he's born? It's not the wise men. It's shepherds. Do you know what first century shepherds were? They were mistrusted thieves is who they were. Nobody liked shepherds. Uh, they, were, they were tending flocks by night, probably paid to do that. People did not trust them because they stole all the time. Uh, they could not hold a place in public office. They could not serve as witnesses in a court of law. They were mistrusted, miscreant people. And you have an angel appearing to them and a great company of the heavenly host, the Greek plethora stratos, could have been thousands upon thousands upon thousands of angels. With shepherds, this is a really motley crew of people that God is appearing to. Uh, okay, so we continue in the Christmas story and what Jesus is presented at the temple for a circumcision, dedication as per Jewish law. He runs into a couple of old people, Anna and Simeon, people waiting to die. They just want to see the Messiah before they die. A couple of seniors, nobodies. They're nobodies. They're a bunch of, it's a hash, hashtag group of people. That, that God is appearing to in the flesh, huh? Uh, so then we read the gospel stories and we read who Jesus is appearing to and who he's calling and who, he's, who, who he spends time with. Fishermen, common, uneducated fishermen, people like Peter, a bumbling foot in his mouth, you know, just a regular, regular messed up guy regular individual, nothing spectacular about him. You see Jesus with little children. The, the people are saying, get these children away from Jesus. You know, they're insignificant. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You bring the children to me. Let them come to me for the kingdom of heaven is such as these. Oh, man. Children were like, get them out of the way. They're, they're in the way. So you see God, it's very strange. It's very bizarre. And who does Jesus get in trouble with? Who does he rub the wrong way? Who dislikes him to the point where they get him put on a cross? I mean, ultimately, it's God responsible for that. But who is it that he really gets, he gets under their skin? The ultra-religious, ultra-orthodox, the standard of religion. These are the people that can't stand them. But the people who can't get enough of him are the miscreant people, the pushed aside. You know, you see him with tax collectors. They were more mistrusted than shepherds. They were like two, viewed as two-faced Jews who worked on the one hand for the Roman Empire. And on the other hand, you know, nobody likes tax collectors even today. You get a call from the CRA. Do you like the person who calls you? No. This is a person, these are the people that Jesus is spending his time with, um, unholy Gentiles. He often is with Gentiles, with a Samaritan woman. He's with a centurion soldier. Uh, he's, they, they accuse him of spending his time with sinners, unclean people, 
lepers, demon-possessed, women who have an oh, obscure life, shall we say, anointing him with oil. You know, you know what kind of life this lady lived? You're letting her touch you like that. These are the people who Jesus spends his time with. So he becomes irresistible to the common person. The ultra-religious person can't stand him, but the regular person adores him in the gospel story. And you see the same thing today. There's an irresistibility about the character and the nature of Christ as presented in the gospels because he's totally politically incorrect. He's doing the opposite of what was expected of him. And the masses of common folk are the people who are attracted to him. The scripture portrays Jesus in a very unusual way. Even in the Old Testament, uh, Isaiah chapter 53, he was despised and rejected by men. Huh? He was despised and rejected, not worshiped, not accepted, not praised, Isaiah says in his vision. He's despised and he's rejected by men, a man of sorrows, the incarnate God presented as a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. You ever had sorrow in your life? You ever have suffering in your life? Well, Jesus relates, you see, because he loves you. He's this man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. Surely he took up our iniquities, our infirmities, and carried our sorrows. That's irresistible to the regular person, the common person. Matthew chapter 11, these are the words of Jesus. He says, come to me, all you who are weary. Are you tired? Are you weary as the journey of life worn you down? Or are you just Mr. Mrs. Perfect, religious, perfect person, got it all together? No, he says, Come to me, all you who are weary, you who are burdened, you who are exhausted, and I will give you rest. Your, your sin has put a burden on your shoulders that you can no longer bear, as it were. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. A yoke was a harness. You took two animals, you yoked them together. He says, well, you get yoked with me. You take my yoke upon you and you learn from me. I'll be right next to you. Just like those two animals who are dragging that load in a harness, a yoke. I'll be right next to you. You learn from me for I am gentle and I am humble in heart. I'm not arrogant. I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not going to deceive you. I'm not going to strike you with lightning. I'm not going to rip you off. I'm not going to give you cancer. You know, I'm not trying to hurt you. I am gentle. I am humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Wow, that's a great, that's great news at Christmas. For my yoke, that harness, my yoke is easy. It's not hard. You're not going to have to carry me around. You're not going to be looking and saying, wow, you're dead weight. I'm doing all the work in this relationship. No, he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The, what we're carrying behind us, the load of life, when you've got me in your corner, it's a light load. That's the message of Christmas. That is the love of God on display. It's in the who, 
who he appears to throughout the entire, entire New Testament. It's in the how, and it's in God's very nature. And application for all of us, I'd like the band, if they'd come, we're going to do a Christmas carol at the end. Uh, and you can go ahead and start playing in the background there. Hark the herald angels sing is that old Christmas carol. But the application for us today, we're supposed to be, you know, presumably many of you in this room are, are followers of Jesus. We're supposed to be carriers and demonstrators of the love of God. So people are supposed to look at us and they're supposed to say, wow, there's something unusual about that person. I can't put my finger on it, but they, they seem to cut against the grain. They seem to show a concern and a compassion that is different from the other people that I see. They seem to show a love for, you know, n'importe qui, for, for, for anyone, regardless of their background or stripe or position in life. They seem to gravitate toward the hurting and the broken and the people of sorrows and suffering in life. They seem to have a characteristic of mercy about them and of grace and of kindness about them. And this is what people are supposed to see when they look at Christians. They're supposed to see a reflection of Jesus and of his love. And that is, is on display. Uh, you know, we're all on display this month of December. So I would, I would challenge you, if you'd stand with me and we're going to pray and then we're going to sing this, this chorus together, this great old Christmas hymn together. But I would challenge you, in particular, we have a, this event that's coming up on the 24th of December. Folks, most people who will be coming to that event do not understand the love of God in this way. If you do nothing else that morning but welcome somebody and make them feel at home and give them a nice handshake and have a minor, even a minor conversation with them where they actually feel like they exist to you, you're showing the love of God to that person. Because what they know of Christmas is the pressure of buying gifts and all of the money that it's going to take and the, the fact that they don't have it. Uh, a large amount of the people are going to be coming from backgrounds that are a little bit disadvantaged and they're struggling in life. And we have an opportunity as a church to show grace and to show love and to show compassion. Uh, I would challenge you to take the invitations that you have uh, at your disposal in the corridor and invite them to your friends, your enemies, and everybody in between. You'd be surprised what is going to happen when you do something like that and when you challenge yourself. Be expressors of the love of Jesus this Christmas season. Father, we thank you today. We thank you for the wonderful good news of Christ at Christmas. Uh, and Lord, I pray you would help us to look at it in a different way, perhaps, to live it in a, in a different way, perhaps, and God, to, to be people who would be so filled with, with the Spirit of God and so filled with the grace of Jesus that it would just naturally flow outside of our lives. Lord, I pray for people who are in this room who are weary and who are tired today. And Lord, they need the yoke of Christ 
They need to be reminded of the yoke of Jesus, that Jesus is right there with them, right there next to them, wanting to carry that burden of life. I pray, Lord, you would impress that upon people today. They would even sense, Lord, the presence and the closeness of the Spirit of God. I pray for those who will be going through this season, and it's the first time that they will experience it without that loved one who has passed away. Uh, there's, a, there's a loss in their own lives, and they're reminded of it even at the holiday season. Lord, I pray for the yoke of Jesus who said, My yoke is easy and my burden is light to just lift people up and give people courage even in this holiday season. We pray in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, Amen.